Welcome to Between the Biotech Waves. I'm your host, Ness in Birmingham. Today, we're talking to Jarn Werber. Jarn is Managing Director of Healthcare Biotechnology at Cowan. He's over 20 years of experience as a research analyst and was a founding team member, Chief Business and Financial Officer at Ovid Therapeutics. Prior to Ovid, Jarn was Managing Director and Head of US Healthcare and Biotech Equity Research at City. Please note, between my vacation, other work commitments and COVID, this conversation was recorded over three weeks ago. During that time, the tea leave reading of the biotech market has marched forward with people highlighting the double bottom and climbing the XBI. While some have hailed this as the end of the bears and seeing the dust of the raging bulls in the distance, I'm inclined to ask what hallucinogenic they took the night before. Down rounds and negotiated valuation resets in the private market are starting to become more of a central theme with continued uncertainty about timing to recovery. 2023 is now being discussed versus the Q2, Q3, 2022, that was the primary focus earlier this year. The landslide of public small mid-cap companies that need to finance has yet to be realized with the macroeconomic challenges remaining in place, inflation's out of control in the backdrop of global destabilization. On the micro side, the CGEN life raft is starting to look like a potential mirage with M&A being limited and company consolidation a whisper. In this episode, Yarn and I discuss the current market metrics what companies may want to consider and the challenges to that oft-flagged oasis of consolidation, M&A, and now the going private plan. We discuss his experience as an operator in a biotech company between his roles in equity research. This experience provides a unique insight into the vagaries of a biotech company and the market. Please welcome Jarn Warber. Jarn, it's great to have you here today and to talk about your experience, you know, over your long and storied career, both in equity research, but more interestingly, or equally as interesting, you know, actually within a company and building that company, uh, operationalizing it, and obviously going out and doing some strategic uh, deals in that front. So you bring a very unique lens, equity research, looking at multiple different companies, strategies for those companies, financings, and overall success and failures, but then actually sitting in a company, which is very unusual and actually having executed yourself so you know thank you for taking the time great to uh you know have you here love to get your first sort of macro perspective on what is going on as you sit and look at the market today from an equity research standpoint great well Ness, thank you so much for having me on i really appreciate it it's uh I've been hosting our own podcast series, so it's easier and more fun being a guest, I have to say. So thanks for inviting me. <laughs> My pleasure. So let, let's talk about what's going on in the market. So what what is not surprising is that we have a correction. We, we all expected it. Corrections come and go. They're a healthy part of pruning valuations, coming back to basics, and, and kind of relaunching ahead again. In this case, what's unique is that we have a macro-related uh, contraction driven by interest rates, obviously inflation for the first time in 20, 30, 40 years, uh, and a war on top of all-time high biotech valuations. And, and as a result, there is going to be a usual contraction. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. Historically, and when I say historically, we go back to mid to late 90s, there has not been uh, an adverse correlation between rising interest rates and performance of biotech equities, because by and large, we've been in a 20-year great cycle, aside from obviously a few corrections. In this specific situation, obviously, we have inflation sitting at a you know 40-year high, and that's obviously changing the appetite for risk in general in equities. At the end of the day, the sector is at a, at a crossing point because we've had you know, and essentially a 10-year cycle of robust financings, and we have a record number of new companies out there which are pretty well financed but also now have healthy burn rates. What's going to happen is from now on, because of competitive intensity, because of the shrinkage in capital, because of the higher bars to having great new clinical data, because of competitive intensity, the bar has been reset higher. A lot of the companies that are early in their in their journey, either they're still preclinical or new IPOs and kind of freshly in the clinic, are now having to contend with that sort of higher bar. 
we are bullish longer term, but I think we're still in the middle of a contraction. I think we still probably have another six to 12 months to go. Six to 12 months. Like what? We're already 16, 17 months in. We've got another, do you think another six to 12? Like what is going to be the signal then that we're pulling out? And is it is it connected to anything on the fundamental side within the biotech sector? Or is this a pure macro event and that really it's going to be a macro driven um, you know, rescue or switch from bear into bull. Yeah, so so it's really interesting. In the last two weeks, and you know that we're, we're recording this, and um, you know, sort of the third week now in, in June, biotech has actually outperformed the market, um, but it's coming off a uh, you know following a, a very strong sell-off and an oversold uh, situation based on where we are technically on on, on charts, but typically. Equities recover when still when things still feel pretty bad. You know, we're beginning to move the, the patient out of the ICU, so to speak, while the labs haven't really totally started correcting yet. That's the way it works. And so we typically then play Monday morning quarterbacks to figure out why things feel better. And we begin to kind of, you know, allocate feelings and, and descriptive natures to what's going on. The, the way these things recover is nuanced, um, and it doesn't repeat the same way. Usually, it's going to be when risk appetite returns to the market. We have to remember biotech is still very much a U.S.-denominated global industry. So when there's a return to alpha, when there's a return to investment, there's a a thirst for U.S. equities, biotech typically tends to start doing well, but it goes hand-in-hand with tech. Obviously, we're in the middle of a tech correction as well. And what's different this time, I would say, than where we were in 2010 to 2012, or to even 2009 to 2012, where large-cap biotech was beginning to really innovate, and that carried the biotech sector to glory. This time around, large-cap biotech is in the middle of its own sort of historical legacy, where they're beginning to face patent challenges, legacy portfolios that are not growing as well. So we don't have that leadership from large-cap. So it's really going to have to come more from innovation in small mid-cap biotech. Well, you know, a lot of innovation going on, right? We're seeing a tremendous number of new modalities coming through, think, being able to do things that we've never been able to do before. Uh, better understanding, I think, from a biological standpoint. But, you know, everybody's turning around and saying, cut your burn, focus down on one or two lead programs. That innovation sort of stifle within your organization, that innovation, at least that seems to be the consistent messaging that we're hearing from investors and, and from the street. When you, as you talk to a company, right, who is, you know, IPO maybe within the last one to two years, what are you saying to them? Or, or as you look at it from a research, equity research standpoint, what are you looking at these companies to actually do to either deal with their burn, deal with ensuring that they survive the next 12 to 18 months? Because let's say there's a recovery in 12 months, they still have to go out and raise on the back of that, right? Um, so what are you looking for or themes that you're looking at for these series of companies that are in the small to mid cap sort of range? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would argue what we're looking for really ought to not change as the equity market gets better or worse. It's about sound decision-making, it's about following the translatability of your biological underpinning preclinically to clinically and ultimately run clinical studies that would really answer the key question to then drive value in the risk program. In this environment, obviously, you need to sharpen your pencil. So it's about run a clinical study that would validate your approach and provide a you know tangible answer, not a shades of gray, you know, type data that depending on which side you want to sit on, you can take victory or, or lament the data. Secondly, pay attention to the competitive intensity and the competitive environment. The, the last three to five years, we've been incentivizing companies to be a fast follower. Well, by definition, when you're a fast follower, you need to be better. Well, there can only be so many fast followers who are all in phase one who are all going to be the best in class. And that continues to ratchet the bar. And that's why there's such perception these days, especially in oncology, that innovation is no longer what it used to be or that companies are disappointing. We would argue that they're not necessarily disappointing. It's just you can't have eight best-in-class uh, you know, drugs to the same target. So be an innovator 
And if you really are a fast follower, make sure you're really comfortable. You're going to be best in class because uh, your ability to raise capital follows suit. And then three, I would say be very objective and honest with yourself as a management team, as a board, as a CEO, about what you really have and whether it's really going to work or not. And prune or cut programs early. I know that that is very, very hard to do internally, but it's going to save you a lot of capital, a lot of time, and set you on the right course long term. Make, make the right decisions and, and be brave to do so. But there's a lot of noise out there. So I'm a company CEO, I'm a CEO of a company, publicly listed, let's say, right? I went public in the last two years. There's been a flood of companies coming out. My competitive landscape now, if I'm in, for example, the IONC space or arguably in the editing space, um, infl- inflammation, yeah, competitive landscape's pretty broad. And the noise it feels is actually, it's at a pitch that's really high right now. For you to see me and to you know believe in me versus everything else that you're seeing, how do I get you to see me? How do I get to rise above the noise and actually really be heard from a research standpoint and frankly be heard in the marketplace in a very crowded sort of industry uh, right now? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. And we're seeing in the cell therapy space, um, ex vivo editing, editing in general, where the, the key questions are, you know, Fairly straightforward, but obviously fairly complicated. One is the ability to sell. Is there going to be reimbursement? Is there going to be patient-driven demand, depending which uh, product, uh, which uh, patient group you're targeting? And then three, is there going to be enough capacity in the system to you know, ultimately absorb the demand? Um, and then I guess four is your ability to produce, obviously. But then separately, is then, and, and that these are very, very important questions, and I think we'll come back to that in a, in a second. And then secondly, of course, is differentiation versus the competition. There's different modalities, certainly in the editing. Are they all different automobiles that get you to the same point at the end, or are they really different journeys altogether? That's a really important question. You know, for, for investors, there's a lot of concerns that at the end of the day, the commercial opportunity will be a lot smaller than might was might have been originally expected, and that the pull through is going to be a lot more modest. and And those are the real questions. On top of it, you're seeing so much innovation happening that we started with Lenti ex vivo, and by the time you know these drugs are about to actually get launched, there's already you know CRISPR 2.0. That's essentially two or three innovation cycles later a totally new modality coming through that is now putting a shadow on ex vivo lenti. So it's a question of not where you're going to be competitive-wise in the next six months, but what's going to happen by the time you get to market three to four years out, which is hard to sometimes foresee. Well, that, you know, that brings us back to the question about whether size here now is really going to be the primary driver where, frankly, you're so big and you have so much data and so much going on that, for, that you, you can maintain your competitive position. I think small companies, it's become, it, it may become more challenging just because the speed of innovation is so fast. You know, you, we're almost looking at, you know, I was talking to a CEO about this the other day, where you set your target product profile right for selection of your DC and moving into your preclinical studies. And, you know, the, the, the target repertoire or target portfolio is relatively small. So you have lots of technologies going after a few targets, right? Back to your reimbursement, your ability to be able to clinical uh, development around it and follow outcomes. So you, you know, we're seeing companies set these TPPs and then suddenly a piece of data comes out that effectively changes that and raises the bar for it. And it just feels, at least to me, and I'll be interested if you're seeing the same thing, to me it feels like we're constantly looking over our shoulder at the competitive landscape more than we've had to do before. And that, you know, as we're nominating a DC, we do actually now run the risk that once we've nominated our TPP through somebody else actually changes materially. That, that's a, it's a great point, Ness. And, and to a certain degree, this is where the challenge sometimes comes to mind. Because on the one hand, you're probably trying to validate a novel technology. And so you're trying to look for a pathway that biology is reasonable and it's straightforward or it's well, well validated and predictive, yet is not 
uber competitive. And so sickle cell, beta thalassemia, right? There's a lot of areas that are super, super competitive. BCMA therapeutics, different modalities on CD20, CD19, you know, NHL. So I would advise companies to maybe take on more risk, go into more of a novel area and a novel pathway yet that is reasonably sizable, that there's not going to be a lot of concerns about, you know, the ultimate market opportunity as well, because you're going to have to cross, you know, both chasms, you know, technologically and then commercially. Yeah, you're going to probably carry a higher discount rate initially on your ability to establish proof of concept or provide validation. And so your, your first journey or your first part of the journey is going to be harder. There's no question but your second and third parts of the journey might ultimately be a lot easier because you're not going to be racing at that point with, you know, five other or seven other or eight other companies. Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, I agree with you on that. I think, that, but you're always, it's almost a balance, you know, when you, th- especially for platform companies, when you think about that first in clinic, you want to take as many uncertainties or variables off the table so that you're really testing you know, your platform, your, your platform technology. So it's, it's almost, you've got this kind of push pull or tension in the system when you're selecting that first program into the clinic that you really are, if you get, um, a, any data from the clinical study when it comes through that you actually can interpret the relevance of that data to the platform itself versus having uncertainty around exam, for example, your patient population, um, and the overall progression of disease or outcome from a disease standpoint. So it's, I know, you know, for Italian and, and all the other platform companies have been involved with, this has been always the constant discussion. Like how do we think about that first in clinic that gives us a market potential um, and, and, and has the opportunity for us to be the first in class uh, and have potentially large market penetration, but also has certainty around it as we think about patient population, tracking, you know, as we think about progression for disease, um, delivery in some cases, uh, et cetera. So it's, it's, it, it certainly seems to be just a real challenge that, we, that, we, that we're facing right now. Um, you said reimbursement. For one of the first things you said was reimbursement, and then you said market penetration and kind of thinking about that. I think we've all seen models, right, for companies that come through, whereby you know the expectation from reimbursement standpoint is absolutely astronomical, um, and the market penetration that they're expecting also is like yeah, it's a hundred percent on day one, right, or actually day minus five. Um, it would be great to get to hear how you're thinking about how that sort of evolution from a reimbursement mechanism or reimbursement uh, approach has actually taken place. Because I think a lot of us, you know, when we saw Savaldi coming out, right, there was clearly a lot of concern about the implications of that. Then we see gene therapies uh, become approved, a lot of discussion around how do we think about being able to reimburse, you know, drugs at this level, CAR-Ts, the same thing. You know, how are you looking at that and how are you you know, what words of advice would you actually provide to these companies as they're actually doing these models around their reimbursement and their overall market penetration? Yeah, so that, that's a, a real great question. And, and you know, re- reimburse, we all talk about reimbursement, and I said reimbursement, but equally, if not more important, it's access. And the time to access and what are the associated discounts to get to, you know, a reasonable access point, you know, for the drug, depending what, what kind of a drug it is, obviously. You know, in CAR-T or, or gene therapy, there's a whole different mechanism of reimbursement, and it becomes very complicated. And, you know, as you know better than me, these departments uh, w- within hospitals are really have very different expertise, even between one huge cancer center and a small and, and another cancer center, about their ability to really code and ultimately the question whether they're losing money on, on the therapy or actually making money. And so that, that's um, that's critical point. But aside from that, the, the real question in the U.S., and I think it's increasingly these launches are more protracted in the U.S., even in oncology, because getting to access is not as easy. Oncology is still fairly reasonable, but even that's taking, you know, taking longer in inflammation, in you know oral uh, therapies, it definitely takes a lot of time, especially when you're in competitive markets. And at that point, frankly, the gross and the discounts are a lot higher than what we've been used to. And so, in general, we're you know recall back in the days, you one launched and people expect to see penetration fairly quickly. Now we're all a lot more patient, being wait, waiting you know two three quarters to kind of really see how how products are launching. 
So that one of the things that it's going to be important for companies to do is educate and just remind analysts and investors about some of the dynamics. I know they can't, but they don't. They would prefer not to talk too much about it publicly, especially when they're in competitive situations. But that is important to do. I do think that when you're in the middle of a launch, and even when you have a commercial product, it is important to call out any quarter-to-quarter variability because a lot of times we're expecting things to continue on a certain trajectory, and then we have a lot of surprises on a quarter-over-quarter basis when things kind of happen as one-timers. So communication and transparency, I would say, are critical. And then from the you know overall market penetration, are you as you think about the models that you're building today, are you how do you right size that? How how are you sitting there and thinking about just generally what that sort of ramp up is, what steady state actually looks like, what's realistic and reasonable? That, that's a, it's a great question. So in oncology, when one would imagine you know eighty percent of patients will be on a certain drug and innovative, let's say. Um, drug with a great clinical profile, it's never going to be 100%, right? And I would even say you're very unlikely to even get to 80% anymore. And it certainly depends on where you are, whether you're really frontline or whether you're really kind of sixth line. So I I think the market's getting more and more attuned that um, there's a lot of disconnects. There are a lot of patients who are many times opting not to get treated. There's a lot of patients who are going to progress really quickly. In if you're a novel product, even creating new segments in inflammation, there is a lot of other options. I mean, if you look at asthma has gotten more crowded, you look at different skin disorders have a lot of competition. And so there's increasing number of options and the markets become a lot more fragmented. So it's very, very important to, uh, to pay attention to that as well. And then, you know, back in the days when a new company came out with an, a novel therapeutic, they would have essentially monopoly power, I would say, five to 10 years. Not so much pricing, but share. Now it's very hard to have that kind of you know, longevity. There's going to be too much competition coming thereafter. And so it's very important to kind of think about where things are going to go over time and then uh, you know, pen, you know, model the penetrations accordingly. But the, the, I would say the bar is just a lot higher and the markets are a lot more fragmented because of that. Shifting a little bit, as we, again, looking at the market today, a lot of discussion, and this is this seems to be a theme that every time we have a down market that kind of rears its head, it's perfect time for people to come in and start doing acquisitions. You know, so pharma, large biotech, you know, they could buy every small to mid cap out there, you know, 50 million times over with the balance sheets that they have. Um, companies should start to aggregate and sort of combine and merge to build a better company. Um, you know, these are always seems to be, and then cut headcount, cut programs. Like these are always the themes that come out. Realistically, what we end up seeing, and please correct me if you've got a different view, but what, I, what I've tended to see in these cycles is there will be headcount reduction, which is always really hard and mentally, psychologically, and socially for any organization in any industry. Um, program reduction. Um, so you're moving to more of a single or dual program pipeline where you're putting your, your capital into, which is a very risky bet, right? Um, but we don't see the roll-ups and we really don't see the sort of BD acquisitions taking place. And even now, you know, 17, whatever is months in, with what we've seen a few uh, acquisitions taking place, not much BD. Acquisitions have focused more on, you know, companies that are going to hit the bottom line either immediately or in the near term. Do you predict on the horizon something different than what we've seen in other cycles, or actually are we just going to see a repeat of what we've seen historically? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think what what we've seen in the last, and we we put out a report, the case for external innovation uh, about six or nine months ago, and we've, as you know, we've been running our, a podcast series called uh, Biotech Deal Making, where we talk about external innovation and deals. And, and one of the things that we're seeing is that in the last three years, oncology is on the upswing. Um, if you look, small molecules are on the upswing in many ways. And inflammation has been increasing, but but fairly steady. And there's definitely a de- deals are moving away from commercial or super late stage toward earlier stage deals. And I think it's probably a function of also what's available, and maybe a little bit more buyers willing to take um, to take on risk. But you know, as you said, that we're still seeing a movement to 
buy and overpay, buy something that's de-risked and overpay. If you look at our analysis, it suggests that when companies do that, um, it looks like they're not taking a lot of risk. I would say maybe they're not taking so much clinical risk, but they're taking an awful lot of commercial and financial risk. And deals, deals are rarely meeting their 14 V9 you know, SEC filings of the underpinning for the, for the deal, their, their uh, projections. So we would argue companies should take on more risk. It should be like um, a difference between a three-point shooter, that if you're shooting 35 40%, you're great. You know, and, and uh, you know, when you're doing free throws, you should be you know, hitting 85 90%. <laughs> and it depends how much risk you want to take. We would argue you should take on more risk, and half the deal should work, and half the deal shouldn't work, but then you're not going to be overpaying, and you'll keep a lot of the... The, the optionality to yourself financially. Are we seeing that it's, though? So um, just on that point, are we seeing that the deals that have been done, and there's a number that immediately springs to my head, but let's just keep it general. On the deals that have been done actually have worked out positively because it feels like, and this, this may just be pure optics, but it feels like, you know, many of the deals that have been done over the past four or five years where there's been enough time that's passed to see how they've actually converted, Right that they actually have not converted um, and that the, the premium and the prices that were paid, you know, either they were, they were acquired too early or the actual underlying thesis for the technologies just really have not played out. I think, I think, I think you are correct by and large. I, I don't disagree. Uh, I think the deals, the, the very prominent deals that we all think about where you bought later stage deals, they ultimately disappointed commercially and maybe even clinically. It's also probably a function of where valuations have been when deals were, were made. And obviously each deal has its own its own reasoning. There's, there's a lot of deals that are earlier stage and of course there's a lot of those are not necessarily going to work out. It really begs the question whether there is real value creation with deals in biotech or whether we should go into a very different business model. But if you think about it, if we're going to remove M&A as a strategy, then companies are going to grow into a certain point. They're then going to be disincentivized for continuing to innovate because they're not so productive, and then they'll start shrinking. And then it's going to require a lot more onus as an industry to have a lot more commercial companies. Um, and you're not going to see quite the synergies, and you're not going to get the M&A premiums, which will then drive premiums and equities, which will then drive more investment into the sector. So it's not a perfect ecosystem, you know, just like nature, but it's got to checks and balances. And, you know, we, we would argue you should take on more risk, not pay as much, rationalize that within your own investments, and everybody needs to come to terms with the fact that not all deals are going to work, and that's okay. But Absolutely correct, right, but that is predicated on the right valuation. And, you know, if, if, I don't know if you guys have done this analysis, you, you, you may have. You look back at the companies that, let's say, went public in 98 to 2001, right? Um, and you look at how, from a valuation, from a pure EV standpoint, those companies have progressed, what they've produced, the drugs that they've brought to market, and for investors, the overall return. So, you know, a, a, a successful IPO, right, for a biotech company, you know, historically, again, going back, let's say 20 years and pluck, kind of plucking these out of the air, but I have a couple of ID, a couple of specific companies in mind, you know, $35 million raise, $50 million raise, pre of 120, 150 on the deal, right? We, we, if you invested there or you invested as that, those companies continue to actually mature somewhat, you still were in the sort of sub $500 million range. Now we're talking about companies that seem to be up in the 500, 750, 1 billion. We're seeing deals on the private side where the posts are 1, 1.5, some even up to 2, right, before they've even gone public. So, you know, the, the, your ability to sort of spread, proverbially spread your bets is now really being constrained. And we're almost valuing these companies for pure perfection. All right, like... Are you seeing that? Like, is that is that a fair representation where we are saying that, frankly, we actually really need to reset back to these sort of more, 
you know, uh, realistic or pragmatic valuations that does provide investors and does provide acquirers, you know, the potential to actually spread a multiple bets and B, you know, actually really drive that upside where it's a 10 X, it's a, it's, it has the potential to be a 50 or a hundred X. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Now. So you, you are, you are spot on. I mean, if you just look at 2022 IPO class and it's eight, eight companies so far versus last year, 85 companies. Valuation in this year is down 47%, you know, relative to last year. Uh, and deal size is down, you know, 21%. Um, so, you know, obviously those two go, go hand in hand. So the, the, you know, the, the other side of that coin and last year, by the way, just like 2019 was, um, you know, banner years, companies post IPO were trading at about an average 750. Just to give you a sense, this year they're at 390. You know, which um, is is the you know one of the lowest since the last seven years or so. So, yet they've raised a lot of capital getting them to this point too. So the the return obviously have shrunk dramatically, and use of proceeds have, has obviously increased a lot because technology, the value of technology has increased, and how much they're actually spending for validation has increased. So, you know, we're, we're coming, you know, round trip in a way. Their ability to raise capital have also allowed them to innovate and, and take on much high, higher cash burns. And to a certain degree, we'll have to see if that's um, really going to continue. But things things go in cycles. And, you know, it might be that companies from now on are, are not going to be doing, they're not going to be as heavy on the platform side. They might ultimately need to return to being very much product centric for the time being. And it's probably going to reduce the number of companies who are, you know, getting founded, although there's still a lot of capital on the sidelines. But, you know, as the return strength is probably going to be the, the pull throw into new investments are going to probably contract this on the grid too. And on that, you know, the, the investments into or investors' willingness to go into new deals, we've seen obviously a retrenchment from generalists now back to pure, to more fundamental uh, investors out there. Um, that under that have a, may have a better sense of the vagaries of the market and actually drug discovery and development. Are you seeing any themes or hearing any themes from investors that you know on the fundamental side that are starting to resonate with you as you as you actually look at the companies and the analysis around the companies, or are, is it a case of almost headless chicken right now, trying to figure out how to manage the current portfolio and deal with the actual, the, 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 the proverbial falling knife, you know, that people are, are dealing with as the, as the market continues to, uh, to, to have such volatility there. Yeah. You, you know, it's really interesting because this, this really kind of ties into your last point, which, you know, a year and a half ago, right? Early 2021, every company was going to get acquired according to most investors. Uh, M&A was, if not the one driver of deal of, of the the price of the equity was number two, maybe number three. Now that's off the table, you know, especially since you're not seeing as many deals and the deals become, they're kind of very fine nuanced and fine tuned as to what, what actually gets acquired. And so now it's back to real fundamentals, real understanding where they are competitively against other companies, where they are as a, fraction of how much cash they have. You know, it used to be back in the days, two times cash was, the, you always, people ask, what's the downside? And it was basic math, two times cash. Now what's the downside? Well, it's a fraction of cash. And increasingly, I talk to people, even companies that have positive phase one, what we consider to be positive phase one, maybe the market, some people won't necessarily agree that it was 100% positive. In any event, you're hearing sentiment like, well, they're trading at one and a half times cash, so they're not cheap enough. Well, think about it. The technology value hasn't been completely wiped out yet, so it's a little expensive. So it tells you kind of that we're closer and closer to the bottom. But people are definitely paying attention to how much capital do companies have? What's their next value trigger? And do they need to raise capital before that? You know, and and ultimately, what's the market sizing? Because I think what's so not what's so new now is that we have seen a lot of novel products launch, yet they're disappointing. And so people are really, really paying attention to what's tangible on the future outlook commercially versus what's really intangible. 
And any sense as to why the, the, the overall sales um, are, have been disappointing? Is it, obviously it's multifactorial, but is it a function of physicians' willingness to, uh, to prescribe? Is it a function of difficulty from a reimbursement standpoint? Is it a function of challenging data that really doesn't blow it out of the park to warrant really physicians' interest around it? Like, is there, are there themes that you're seeing or specific indicators that are actually this is either the system's just too flooded or what, what's being approved right now, the quality just really isn't that great? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we're, we're seeing um, in some cases, let's start and, and look at a few cases in oncology, for example, where you had relatively rare mutations, epidemiologically what you would have thought uh, would be the, the size of the market is not panning out, potentially because the patients are harder to diagnose or they are identified as having a mutation when they get the biopsy, but then by the time they really are second or third or fourth line, two, three years down the line, it's not top of mind. Maybe the community is not quite as educated. It's not earmarked very clearly, and they progress very quickly, and so they're not offered the drug. Um, in other cases, you're seeing reimbursement challenges because the products are not differentiated enough, and they are competing in very um, you know, hev- heavily formulated areas where Clinical differentiation alone is not sufficient, given the, 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 the payer power. In other cases, you are seeing new products launching that are extremely innovative, and they are beating numbers. A lot of the time, it goes hand-in-hand hand with what Wall Street expectations were heading into the launch. Sometimes, you know, Wall Street gets way ahead of itself on all sides, and the valuation of the company might be, you know, overinflated relative to what they can accomplish. It goes sort of hand-in-hand. Hand and it's embedded in numbers that are that are obviously published for them, and they can't meet them. In other cases, you've seen situation. Europe in general has been a disaster. It's just getting harder and harder to get paid. It's taking longer and longer, and it's increasingly more fragmented. Um, and then, you know, in general, there's a lot of gross to net discounts. So I think it really depends. At the end of the day, when we really see a super innovative product that is, you know, appropriately priced, those products tend to do well. Um, you know, the biggest the biggest concern, though, is that Wall Street's very savvy, and they begin to project these things way in advance. And because there's so many, so few great ideas, everybody flocks them, and expectations get higher and higher. And that sometimes is the doomsday of the product ultimately disappointing, quote-unquote, Wall Street expectations. Well, that's that's where I look at EPS also, right? You've got a pre preclinical or already clinical company. They put out EPS numbers on a quarter <laughs> quarterly basis, and the market's de- disappointed because they had expected a different one. You're like sitting going, wait a minute, it's a preclinical. You know, they're burning through cash. We're talking about a cent or two cents here. You drive me crazy. Um, I want to come back to the point on um, mergers. The again, we've heard multiple groups turn around and say this is a great opportunity for a CEO or senior leadership team in a company to basically map the landscape out there and go out and see if they can't do a roll-up to build a bigger, uh, more appropriate, uh, well, not more appropriate, bigger company, um, stronger balance sheet. We haven't seen that happen. Uh, invariably, I think that there are multiple components that, that prevent it from happening. Do you think that, that that is a viable and realistic approach that somebody can take today? Or do you actually think that it's nice it's a nice idea, but practically speaking, it's not. It's not really. The probability of success is actually really low. It's it's a, it's a great idea, and you would have a lot of synergy. You have to be in the right capital environment, where when there's a lot of capital, and valuations are up. It's inevitably harder for a buyer to to pick up an asset and really keep you know the upside on uh, financially. As, as exit the capital shrinks, like now, and valuations are a lot more reasonable, this, this might be the time to do that. You you need to be pragmatic and smart about what you're buying and what you're rolling in or what you're rolling up. A lot of times, the companies that are distressed now, they might have already launched and have not done well. And then the real question is, is it a failure to launch? Was it COVID-related? Was it drug-related? Was it poor marketing or is the product just not resonating? And so the real question is, can you really enhance the outlook by bringing it in-house? There are definitely 
a few companies, definitely in hematology, that have launched products have not done well, and they're very reasonably valued. So a bigger company bringing them in and conglomerating them into into an existing franchise with high synergies, that could make a lot of sense. Um, increasingly in Europe, I think we're gonna we'll have to see consolidation to a certain degree as to how many biotechs are really going to be commercializing their own products. You know, ten years ago everybody wanted to go commercial in Europe, and now increasingly people are really taking a hard look at that. Um, even when they're launching their own products, they are investing prudently. By, by definition, at that point, they're not investing as they need to do, and it's also harder to then translate the value, but it makes sense uh, that that new strategy does make sense. So I think it, it makes sense in select areas. That's the bottom line. You know, I, I think you've got one of the hardest jobs, um, frankly. You know, I've tried to do your job, uh, and, I, I, and it's hard, I think, for a number of reasons. You know, you've got to turn around and value a company, right? across multiple di different factors. You're looking at a target price, um, you know, neutral, sell, buy. Um, you're being tested or your ability to do it is being judged on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, right? Um, and you don't have 100% of the data. So like, how, when you think about a changing market, and as you've watched your career over the last 20-plus years, wh where... How has your job actually evolved, your, your evaluation of these companies evolved? And when you look at a market where effectively you've had a bear market for a while, these valuations have gone up, you've set valuations on the basis of the sort of fundamentals of the company, but also as you look at the overall macro environment these companies actually are in, and then you hit something like what we've seen over the past few months. How do you think about resetting valuation? How do you think about resetting your expectations for the company? And frankly, how do you stay sane? Yeah, you know, honestly, Ness, this is, uh, it's hard. Uh, I, I agree with you. And I can tell you from my own experience that sometimes, you know, we've, we've been on, on Wall Street, you know, aside from four years as a CFO, we've been on Wall Street for, you know, 18 of my 22 year career so far. And Having experience sometimes really counts against you, and I'll give you two great examples. One is the 2012, you know, innovation and resetting of valuations. Remember, we're coming from a, a bear market where the S&P bottomed, I think, at nine nine x forward. Recall the S&P was trading about twenty four, twenty five, you know, forward last year or so. And and for a while, when biotech started ripping and, and large cap biotech was ripping in 2012, 2013, at some point after the sector was up 30, 40 percent. I started getting a little worried as to how much further can it go, and my God, was I wrong, right? The sector ended up going up, what, three, four, five-fold since then. And so that, that really held me back. And about, you know, two years ago, you know, historically, we've always thought that 30 to 40 times forward multiples on second-year profitability is the bottom, the minimum sort of floor where new profitable companies are going to be trading it. They usually trade it much higher than that. That was based on, you know, growing 30, 40% on a five-year kegger earnings. So 30, 40x made a lot of sense. And rarely in our career would we go about 40. Well, realistically, in the last two years ago, if you were wedded to that 30 to 40 multiple, you were <laughs> overly bearish at the wrong time. So where I'm going, and I used to tell my team all the time, we need to free our mind. And I was telling myself in the mirror, frankly, free your mind. You're in a very different market. The S&P is trading at 25 times, growing 6 7%, right? So valuation is all relative, and it's a part of the overall matrix. Um, our job is not to make sector calls, because at that point, either everything is a buy or everything is a sell, and that's just not useful to our client base, who's mostly biotech specialists. Um, or generalists who decide if they want to buy biotech or not, and then they'll want stock picking as opposed to a view on the sector overall. But that's one of the views. But it, it's very hard. DCF, I think, is one of the most challenging ways to value companies because it's mm -hmm. all about how, you know, is it a 3% terminal growth rate? Is it negative 3%? And you can make any model you want. And two analysts who are spending an inordinate amount working on the same model will get to two different valuations. So it's very much subjective in so many ways. Um, and that's where the catalysts really come into play and where you are against sentiment. And unfortunately, that's a big part of the job. Yeah. Well, all right. CFO, as you point out, you sat and you went in. Uh, you were one of the founding team, right, for Ovid. 
um, you were involved as both on the finance side, but on the strategy and BD side. So you saw a lot going on in that uh, company's growth trajectory. You're sitting on the other side from analysts, right? You're interacting with investors from a company perspective versus from sitting on the outside looking in and, and, and evaluating. What did you learn from that and, and what did you take back? You know, it was interesting. Equity research, CFO, back to equity research. What did you take back into equity research in, in, that may have changed the lens that you use in evaluating these companies? And what, what learnings did you get that you think that lightly made you a better analyst from actually having that experience? Yeah, so, you know, so what, one of the things um, that we did when we, we crossed over and we started to network with a lot of other people who crossed over and, and you know, even kind of put together what we used to call the huddle, which was a, a lot of people meeting together informally every quarter to talk about their experience and, and sort of both sides. And actually, you know, since we came back to being an analyst, we've started writing these called Insight Plus reports, which are designed to discuss uh, – and stimulate a conversation between the board, the C-suite, and investors about value creation, strategy, and learning from both sides. And and I can tell you that if you, I almost feel like um, you wake up in the morning on Wall Street and you see the world in a certain way, and you wake up in the morning with the same view as an operator, and you see the world in a slightly different way. And when you marry the two of them together, you really get the three-dimensional model, and you, you really have different viewpoints. What I would say is that operationally things are harder than I ever expected them to be. Um, you're operating with more limited set of information than perhaps Wall Street sometimes thinks. In other words, at, at times Wall Street actually knows more than Wall Street thinks it knows. And, you know, operators are very good at operating in general. These are blank statements in general. But they might not quite understand the journey the way Wall Street really sees the journey because by virtue of the fact that that's what Wall Street is is trained to foresee the future. If you think about what Wall Street as a machine does, operators are trained to operate and make things happen. They're not sitting there thinking about the future the way we do on this side. And that was one of the biggest learnings for me. And that's why what we try to do a lot these days when we talk to investors is help them maybe think a little bit about what's going on on the other side in the company sitting in their seats. And what we spend a lot of time with management teams in, in our writing is helping them understand how small decisions carry enormous consequences strategically long-term. Well, I think that brings up a very interesting point. You know, when I first started doing investing, I'd never done any operating or uh, been an operator. You know, looking in, sitting on boards, and I remember uh, you know, telling people, this is what you should be doing. This is how, you know, you need to execute and go get this done without actually realizing the implications and the challenges to do that. I remember somebody pulling me aside once and saying, it's very easy for you as an investor to say all of these things, but actually the execution is really tough. Then I sat in the chair of the execution side and how challenging I realized it actually is and the issues that you face. But the point you make is a very good one. When you're sitting in the chair from an operating standpoint, you're sort of dealing with the immediate needs of the organization and the sort of midterm strategic um, demands, right? Or uh, developing that strategy. You're not really thinking about, especially for early stage companies, platform stage companies, you're not thinking about commercial, right? So you're not thinking about how do you manufacture necessarily, or you, ha you may be thinking about it, but it's, 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 it's a blip on a radar that's further out than other blips that you actually need to deal with. You're not necessarily thinking about your cost of goods to the same extent. You're not necessarily thinking about distribution channels, uh, reimbursement considerations, et cetera. So you, know, you, you are right, right, that Wall Street is coming in and saying, well, we've seen this playbook. We know what the end story, how this ultimately plays out and the challenges you know, in chapter 12, and you are at chapter one right now. Um, that, that I think a lot of people, especially first-time senior leadership teams, actually just completely miss, and there, there are aspects of it they're just not aware of. Um, I, you know, I don't know if there's, uh, you know, if you have any other last-minute thoughts about this market, and you know, putting in context the prior markets, um, that you that you think warrants uh, warrants uh, flagging. I mean, I think that you're you're obviously spot on, right? It's 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 so hard 
thinking through your next challenge and how do you overcome the next obstacle? And you're not kind of thinking that as you're, as you're creating a product, it's going to require, you know, running to an obstacle course, you know, later on. And then you start kind of realizing, and you know, how fast can we run this hundred meter, you know, race, just given what we just went through. And so, you know, for me, it's, it, it all comes down to what's the end product of the journey, you know? And, you know, a very smart person who's developed one of the most successful drugs ever said, said to me once, you know, we all get credit for developing an amazing product. But if you think about it, developing an amazing product is not that hard. And I think this person was being very modest. But it's a question of making sure the person, the, the patient basically, you know, takes this pill. The, the results were 95%, you know, uh, success. When you're designing, you're trying to get a product to prove that has a, you know, a 19% success rate, it's not a great product, that might be very, very hard. And so it's a question of ultimately kind of thinking at all points, what do you really have, you know, and, and ultimately how's that going to deliver value long term? And I know year one to three, you know, you go public and you start having great clinical results and the stocks all go up and everybody feels great. You know, we're seeing this on the other side now. Is these products are now coming to market, and they're commercially they're really struggling. And these companies go from you know ten dollars a share to two hundred dollars a share to eight dollars a share. Right. Um, and you think about your employee base, you know, the management team, the board, and all value to the system altogether. The the ultimate value creation is not year one to three, but it's oftentimes year five to seven, right? And so it, it's not easy. But that's really, it's a, it's a 26 mile marathon, right? It's not a five mile sprint. But yeah, I think the companies are being judged for every half mile that they run in the 26 mile, 26.2 mile marathon, right? And I think that's part of the challenge here. It is such a long process and the iter- iteration cycles are, are long. Um, I, so, you know, the quarterly, the annuals for these, especially pre-commercial, I think is just, it's hard. Um, yeah, this was great. I uh, really appreciate the time that you took and the insights uh, that you have. Everybody should, uh, if they get a chance, listen to uh, Yarn's uh, podcast. You want to shout it out there? Yeah, it's called, uh, it's called, it's under the Cowan Insights uh, banner for Cowan. You can find it on, on, on uh, Apple uh, Podcasts and Spotify uh, and SoundCloud. And the biotech specifically called Biotech Dealmaking and uh, External Innovation. Uh, it is a great listen. And thank you very much for sharing your insights with us today. Great to talk to you. Yeah, great to hear from you, Ness. Always great. Always appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Between the Biotech Waves. 